We're continuing today in our sermon series on Jonah, uh, and he is having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad mission trip. And where we left Jonah last week is where he um, received the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord said, go to Nineveh and tell them that their evil and wicked and their evilness and their wickedness has reached my ears. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that God is just now hearing about their evilness and their wickedness. What it means is that God is ready to do something about it. Um, and sometimes we wonder, we're going to, I promise we'll get back to Jonah in a second, but sometimes I've talked to some of you, you sit in my office and we have conversations and sometimes you're talking about yourself. Um, I love this one. You're talking about yourself, but you don't think I know it. It's your friend. I'm sure it is. But anyway, sometimes you're talking about yourself, and sometimes you really are talking about friends and family members, and what you want to know is how long will God allow certain things, and how long will they happen? And sometimes we start to think that, well, because God allows it, it just, it's not really something that he seems to care about. So I'm in a relationship that I shouldn't be in, um, but God doesn't seem to care, so it must not be a big deal, or I'm, I'm, I'm engaged in some shady business practices that I shouldn't be engaged in, but God doesn't seem to care, or, you know, I, I, I don't really um, do the things I'm supposed to, or I'm getting drunk way too often. Uh, by the way, if you're getting drunk, you're getting drunk way too often, but, but I'm getting drunk, and, and, and I'm being, all of those things, what we say is, we say, okay, well, you know, God's not doing anything, so it must not matter to him as much, okay? But, but what I want to read for you is something here in Romans 4, and this is true of where Nineveh's at. We wonder, why hasn't God done something already? If things are so wicked that God is about to destroy them, why hasn't he done something already? And Romans 2, 4, I think, sums it up for us pretty well. Here's what it says. This is our memory verse for the week if you track that stuff on Facebook. But don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? You see, it's not a matter when God doesn't jump all over you because of your sin. It's not a matter of assuming that God doesn't care about that sin. But when you hear preaching against your sin, we talked about this last week, it's the church's job to preach against you. And it's not something we take lightly, it's not something we revel in, but it's something we do because it's what God puts us. It's our job to preach against sometimes your behavior. It's our job to preach against the city of Vinton. It's our job to make you so uncomfortable with your sin that you are obligated to either ignore the word of God or do something about your sin. That's ultimately what the church is supposed to be about when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can either turn to God in repentance and find forgiveness and grace and mercy at the foot of the cross, or you can decide, I don't need that. I'm just going to go live my own life. But ultimately, we are in a position to choose, and this is what happens. But don't we see how wonderfully patient and merciful and kind to God is that he's giving us time to repent and time to choose? It's not so that we can continue to revel in our sin because judgment is coming, and that's what God tells Jonah. He says, hey, I've heard about the wickedness of Nineveh, 
Go and tell them that I am about to come against them. Jonah freaks out. Jonah doesn't want to go. Jonah doesn't want to go. Uh, we talked about this last week. We discovered in, in the text that it's not that Jonah doesn't want to go because he's scared of the Ninevites, but it's because he's a little bit concerned that by preaching to them that they will respond and God will show grace to them, and Jonah would really like it if they would all just die. And so he doesn't want to go preach to them. He wants them to just die. He doesn't want them to have mercy. He wants them to perish. And so what he does is he makes a, what I would call, stupid decision. He does stupid. Okay, we talk about doing stupid in here sometimes, and stupid is, is when we just, we do dumb. We do things that we know we're not supposed to do. And Jonah um, makes plans, and he takes a trip, and he, he goes to Joppa, and he takes out some cash, and um, he pays a fare, and he gets on a boat, and he goes to Tarshish, and Tarshish is the complete opposite direction of Nineveh, okay? And uh, what happens is he doubles down on stupid. And you know what I'm talking about, right? Like if you've ever done stupid, like I, I occasionally do things, especially when I was younger. Like I'm, I'm pretty good now. I'm not really. Um, but, but I'm pretty good now comparatively to where I was when I was younger. But when I was younger, it was not uncommon for me to do dumb. And then instead of owning dumb, to really double down. Like to, it, it, to deny that I did anything wrong and to argue about why I'm right, even though everybody knows that I'm wrong, and, and just to really go that direction and focus in there. And what happens is um, that leads to this snowball effect where things get worse and worse and worse, and we get further and further and further away from where we need to be. And you know this. We talked about it last um, sermon series when we talked about the prodigal son. The longer you wallow in the pig pen, the harder it is to get back to the Father's house. Because the longer you wallow in the pig pen, the more you think this is just the way that it needs to be. And the more you think this thing between God and I is starting to get damaged permanently. And we're going to see that happen with Jonah today. Okay, we're going to see that happen with Jonah as we work through the text. You're going to see that Jonah's going to be in a position, Jonah's going to be in a position where he has the opportunity to ask this God of grace, and he knows, he knows that he's a God of grace, right? Get that. He knows that he's a God of grace. The reason he doesn't want to go to Nineveh is because he is afraid that God is going to give them grace. He knows that this God he serves is a God of grace, and he is going to be in a position where he is going to choose death over choosing repentance. And that is a conscious decision that Jonah makes because he is so far gone. And so before we even get into the text, before we get started today, here's the thing I want you to know and I want you to wrap your head around, okay? The longer you wait when you know God is calling you, the harder it gets to respond. Think about it this way if you're married. It's when you have a fight with your spouse and you know you're wrong, and you know you should just go apologize, but you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and the next thing you know, you're three weeks in, and nobody's owned anything because you're just that angry. The longer you wait, the harder it gets, okay? All right. Um, the problem with Jonah, though, as he's having this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad mission trip, is his heart, and so we're going to get into the text, and we're going to deal with the rest of chapter one today, but before we do that, I want to show you that, that Jonah has three false beliefs 
that are pushing him, or at least it appears that he has these false beliefs that are pushing him. False belief number one is that he is better than those people. Now, Jonah says it out loud, right? I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord of heaven, the creator of the land and the sea. Jonah will say it out loud. I'm better than those people. We, as Christians, we don't actually say that, right? Because you know if you say that, that you're going to get talked to. But we act like it a lot. We act like we're better than those people. We're angry with those people. We don't like those people. We're not sure we want to minister to those people. We're not sure we want those people in our church. We're not sure we want those people um, in our families. We certainly don't want them in our homes. We don't want them in our small groups. We're not sure about those people. So what we do is we just kind of act like we're better than, okay? But God is so clear that um, you are not better than. In fact, Romans 2.5 says this, Um, after we talk about, don't you realize how patient God is with you, how patient God is with you. It's for your benefit that God is patient. He wants you to turn to him. That's why he's holding back all of these things. But because you're stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, in this case, the sin of pride, the sin of thinking better of yourself than you ought to, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is what's happening to Jonah right now in the text. It's happening to Jonah right now in the text as we get into this today in, in, in the rest of chapter one, uh, and we start to get into chapter two a little bit, is that Jonah is storing up wrath for himself. He's storing up wrath for himself because he has decided that he's better than those people, and because he's better than those people, he doesn't have to go talk to those people, and he doesn't want anything to do with them. And God says, no, no, when you do that, you're storing up wrath for yourself. You're storing up wrath. False belief number two is that their sin is worse than mine. And we love this one, right? Because this one sounds a little holier, right? I'm not better than you. It's just that your sin is worse than mine, right? Like, like you know, we're, God loves us both. You just do dumb more often than I do dumb, and you do it in bigger fashion. And so, therefore, you're going to have more trouble than I am. But the reality is this isn't true either. When we judge people for their sin, it shows that our sin is actually worse than theirs. Romans 2.1 says, you may think that you can condemn such people, but you're just as bad. And, and you have no excuse. And the reason he says to, to the people, you have no excuse, is because you, you are Christians. You have received the grace and forgiveness of God. And so for you to think that you can condemn such people when you've been given the grace and forgiveness of God is just absurd. When you say that they're wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself because you who judge others do the very same things. But we say, well, yeah, yeah, I sin, but their sin is worse than mine. And there's two ways that you have to remember this. We've talked about this before, but, but their sin is actually the same level of heinousness. I get to use the word heinous. I, it's a great word. Their sin is the same level of heinousness as your sin is. And here's why. Because when you sin, you are going against the God of the universe. Listen to me when I tell you that it does not get worse than that. When you sin, I don't care what your sin is. When you sin, you are going against the God of the universe. When they sin, they are going against the God of the universe. Your sin is on par 
with their sin because both of them are going against the God of the universe. It does not get worse than that. So for you to have the attitude that says, yes, I know I sin, but their sin is so much worse than my sin, that's problematic. Now, here's the thing that you have to understand. Sometimes we start thinking of it from human perspectives, and when we think of it from human perspective, what we start to do is we start to decide that some sin is worse than other sins. And from a human perspective, that's true. But that's the whole thing that Jesus teaches about in Matthew 5 when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, when when he starts to put sin on the same category. Humanly speaking, when I murder someone, that sin is worse than when I have terrible rage towards someone. Nobody will lock me up and throw me in jail for having terrible rage towards someone. Humanly speaking, that is less bad than murder. But listen to me. You can't give yourself a pass there because spiritually speaking, what Jesus so very clearly says is when you harbor rage and anger in your heart towards someone, you've committed murder. Those sins are equally bad. They have different temporary consequences, but those sins are equally bad. You struggle with lust. Jesus says when you struggle with lust, you have, in fact, committed adultery. You struggling with lust, though, probably isn't going to cost you your family the way committing adultery might cost you your family. They have different temporary earthly consequences, but according to Jesus, they're on the same par. So your sin is not better than their sin. Whatever little respectable sin that you have been harboring in your heart that you think is a little bit better than everybody else's really overt bad sin, it's not better. You might get away with it. You might get away with it, but it's not better. And and here's the other thing. We think we can hide from God. We think we can hide some of those little respectable sins. Jonah thought he could hide. That's why he got on a boat and started to go to Tarshish. He thought he could hide from God. Sometimes we think we can hide. At least we can hide those parts of ourselves. Some of you here, and you are here today, and I will give you, this is going to sound weird, but I will give you credit, kudos to you, because you have hidden your secret sin from me very well. You have secret sin, and the church doesn't know about it. You have a porn addiction, nobody knows, right? You've got a drug problem, Um, sooner or later people are going to know, but right now they don't know. You are angry and bitter at someone and you lack forgiveness. You can lock that in for a little while. Right? You're having a secret life that people don't know about. You can lock that in for a while. See, sometimes we think that because I can lock that off and I can hide that, that you're hiding that from God. You can't hide that from God. Look at what Romans 2.16 says. All of these come from Romans 2, by the way. It's a good um, 1 and 2. Romans 1 and 2 are good things to read through as we struggle through Jonah. Says, and, and the message I proclaim is this, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. The day is coming when your secret life will be exposed and your secret sin, that respectable thin, sin that you thought you had that nobody knew about, that you thought was not that big of a deal, right? It is a big deal. Don't you realize how terribly patient and kind God is being by relenting and bringing that to the forefront because he wants you to change and grow, but the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge the secret life and the secret sin that happens. It's happening. It's going to happen. So those are some false beliefs that Jonah seems to have. All right? Now, we're going to jump in. 
Jonah, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 4 through 17. Basically, we're going to finish chapter 1 today. Starts here. But the Lord uh, hurled a powerful wind, a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. So you remember what's happening here in this context is that um, Jonah is gotten on the boat to go to Tarshish. Actually, you see it in, in, in the Veggie Tales video clip. Um, they're on the boat with the pirates who don't do anything. Who's seen the movie? It's worth a watch. Okay, you could probably skip the rest of the series. No, you shouldn't do that. But it's still worth a watch. But Jonah gets on the boat. They sail for Tarshish. And that's all we have. He gets on the boat. He pays the fare. They're on the way. These guys, they're just regular sailors, um, probably not pirates who don't do anything, probably just regular people that do this kind of work. And they're on their way to Tarshish. Jonah says, I want to go. They've got cargo. They've got things that they're taking to the port city to sell, to trade. It's the reason for their going. But Jonah says, hey, I want to go, pays a fare, gets on board, and they set sail. And because of that, because of Jonah's decision to get on the boat, and we hate this part. People argue about this with me all the time, but I can't make the Bible say something else right here. God hurled a powerful wind over the sea causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. See, pastors like me and good, well-meaning Christians like you, we really love to say, well, God doesn't cause these things. God allows them to happen, and sometimes that's true, right? God doesn't cause violent, terrible storms at sea. He allows them to happen at times because of that. No, 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 listen, I get that, right? Because we don't want to implicate God, so we try to treat God with kid gloves. God would never cause the windstorm of 2011, that was a thing, right? God would never cause the flood of 2008. Now, I am not suggesting God caused a flood or God brought a windstorm. Sometimes those happen because the world is broken. Sometimes that happens. But in this instance, God himself grabbed the wind. This is me taking liberties. Grabbed the wind. He balled it up. He gotten his wind up, and he launched it at the boat. Very intentional, purposeful decision by God. And we hate that. And we want to know, why would God, sometimes we get mad, why would God allow those things? But sometimes in this context, we have to ask, why in the world would God do that? There are poor, innocent people on the boat. And God sends a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatens to break the ship apart. God does that intentionally and on purpose. And so, listen, I just need you to know this. And I feel like we've talked about this a lot, but when you are wandering away from truth. Sometimes things happen because of your stupid, right? When I'm wandering away from truth, sometimes things happen. I do stupid things and there are natural stupid consequences that happen because of it. But sometimes when I'm wandering away from truth, God will bring the hardship to me. And he's bringing the hardship to me on purpose because he wants me to stop. He wants me to quit. Because God is a lot more interested in your holiness than your happiness. And God is working to make you uncomfortable in your sin so that you will become increasingly uncomfortable with your sin. 
See, I want you to wrap your head around that. God, when you are living in sin, is going to continue sometimes to bring pressure so that you will be uncomfortable in that life so that you will start to be uncomfortable with that life. Because that's not the life that you're supposed to live. Because God isn't interested you in, in you going to bed happy every night. God is interested in you growing in holiness. So there is a big difference that you need to wrap your head around here. God is significantly less interested in your happiness than he is in your holiness. And you know what? We should get that. You know what I've discovered about Christians? Especially Christians my age or older. You know what we hate? We hate the participation trophy culture. Like the fact that everybody gets a trophy. Like, oh, good job. You showed up. You get a trophy. When I played basketball as a kid, I got a lot of trophies. We never won anything, right? We, I'm not good at basketball, but I got trophies. Actually, I don't think I have them anymore. Um, maybe my parents still have them. I don't know, but we get trophies. Or, or sixth grade track and field day. All of this running a sprint, I got a ribbon. Like, congratulations, you finished. But we hate that culture. We hate the participation trophy culture. It's weird. Like, in schools, and, and, and we hate it when our kids grow up that way, and we hate the fact that they think that way, and it drives us nuts. As Christians, we hate that. But here's the thing. As Christians, we love it when it has to do with faith. We love it when we can just participate and think somehow that gets us something in terms of faith, right? I show up at church. Here you go. Good job. You got your ribbon. Church attendance. Way to do it. I was here at least 40% of the Sundays in 2018. Great job. Here's your participation ribbon, right? We think, well, I am holy in at least half of the ways that I'm supposed to be. Good job. Good job, little buddy. Here's a trophy. It's like, well, I do right most of the time. I only harbor this kind of sin. See, we, we hate the participation trophy attitude of the world we live in, but when it comes to church, we love it. Because we want to think that if we do just enough, that we're going to be okay. And then we read something like Jonah 4, where it says, God hurled a windstorm threatening to destroy the boat because Jonah, who, I mean, let's face it, in our culture, Jonah would have gotten some serious trophies. Jonah was a prophet. Jonah was a Hebrew. Jonah was spiritually clean. Jonah never missed a Sunday or a Saturday, I guess, at the synagogue. Jonah was always where he was supposed to be. Jonah was at temple. Jonah was making sacrifices. Jonah was sharing God's word. Jonah was holding people accountable. Jonah was doing all of it. He deserved some participation trophies. But then all of a sudden, Jonah decided he doesn't want to do that part and God, because of that one part that Jonah doesn't want to do, because of the one part of his heart that's wrong, because of the fact that he runs away instead of embracing the fact that God wants to forgive people, God hurls a windstorm at him. I mean, I, we can't breeze past that part of the story. If you in your life are living in some kind of way that you know is contradictory to God's word, if there is part of you that knows you are living in a way that in some way is contradictory to God's word, there's at least a chance, according to this scripture, there's at least a chance that God is the one that's bringing the hardship in your life. Not because he's mad at you, not because he wants to punish you, but because he wants your attention. 
because he wants you to be so uncomfortable in your sin that you will become uncomfortable with your sin and you will walk away from it. Okay? One five. Keep going. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. So the sailors, it's, it's so bad, the storm. I, the, we have this text here just so you understand how bad it is that these sailors, the storm is so bad that their whole reason for going is the cargo that they're going to trade or sell when they get to Tarshish. And they've got this boat full of this stuff and the storm is so bad that they toss it all overboard because all they are focused on now is living. They're not focused on their financial well-being. They're not focused on any of this. The storm is so bad that they throw everything overboard and they shout out to their gods. And they're not Hebrews, so they're not shouting out to Yahweh, but they're shouting out to pagan gods. Um, they're small G gods. They're, 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 they're shouting out to the God of the sea. God of the sea, please stop doing this to us. God of the wind, please stop doing this to us. And they throw everything overboard. Then the captain goes down and says, hey, Jonah, how can you sleep at a time like this? Because get this, Jonah, while all of this is going on, they're throwing cargo overboard, they're tossing everything overseas, they're shouting out to their gods to help them. Jonah is napping downstairs. And so they shouted him, how can you sleep at a time like this? Get up and pray to your God because maybe he'll pay attention to us. Maybe he'll spare our lives, right? It's not working when we shout to our gods. Maybe you can shout to your God and that will help. And so wake up and shout to your God. And there's something about this that I need you to know. Jonah is not sleeping downstairs right now because he is relaxed. Jonah is sleeping downstairs right now because he is resigned, and there's a significant difference. Some of you are in this spot too. Some of you feel like you're so far gone in your sin. And you've lived your life of sin for so long. And, and, and you've tried to give God all the other areas, but this part of your life, it's so hard. You're just resigned to the fact that this is the way that it needs to be. You're kind of resigned to the fact that this is the way that it always will be. Jonah's not relaxed. He's resigned. But God is not going to allow that to happen. But here's, here's just the one thing I want you to know about this. Um, when you're in spiritual disobedience, you run the risk of becoming really numb to the storm. So, so here's, here's what I mean. When you have decided that you're going to wall off part of your life, and it's a part of your life that you don't want God to deal with, your public life God can have, Okay, or 95% of your life God can have, but there's part of your life that you're going to wall off and you don't want God to have it. You don't want Jesus in there. You don't want that part to be different or you don't think that part can be different and, and, and you're going to do that. What, what happens is you start to become numb. You know what happens when you become numb? Typically, it hurts everything. When you become spiritually numb to what God is trying to do in your life, when you become spiritually numb to the things that God is bringing in your life, eventually, here's what happens. Eventually, you start to get angry at people that are trying to tell you the truth. Eventually, you start to shut God out completely. Maybe you used to read your Bible and you used to pray and you just used to pretend that he doesn't say anything about sex outside of marriage. You just 
Like, I, I do this, I pray, I, I, I pretend that part's not there, or I purposely skip those parts when I'm reading through Scripture, or I make them mean something different, that's what it is, or, or whatever else the, the issue is, um, and, and I, I kind of just dig in there. Eventually, though, I'm going to get hard and I'm going to get bitter to the people that want to tell me different. I've seen, and I'm not going to say countless because I could probably count them, but I've seen more than one, handfuls in my, in my almost five years as a pastor. I've seen people walk away from the church or walk away from conversations because they're sick of hearing it. Well, they're sick of hearing it because they're becoming numb because they get so disobedient that they're becoming numb and the teaching just, it does nothing for them or eventually it just pushes them away. They stop coming to church. They, they stop hanging out with the Christian friends that will hold them accountable and they start hanging out with the friends that will just be happy in their disobedience. And so all of a sudden, the only people that they're allowing to say anything to them about the way they're living are people that want them to live wildly. Well, you can imagine the problem there, right? Because then all of the feedback you're getting says, you know what, just dig in and just do what makes you feel good and do what makes you happy. But the stuff that I need, I'm numb to it. And I've pushed it away and I've walked away from it. And this happens all the time. You gotta be really careful about that. You can't, you can't be so disobedient that you just get numb to what God's trying to tell you. Because there is a point where there is a point where you just, you just give up. And I've seen it happen, and I hate that it happens, and we always pray for repentance, and there's always a chance for people to repent and come back to God. There's always a chance for people to find their way back to God. We're always working as a church to help people find their way back to God. But there's a point in time when you just continue to push away and you become numb to what God's trying to tell you. There's a point in time where you run the risk of just hardening your heart and walking away. It's a dangerous place to be. We keep going. Verses seven and eight. Uh, then the crew, this is what we saw. Um, the crew cast lots. We saw it as a game of go fish. Okay, but then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. See, they're very clear that God has brought the storm on. You know, here's how they know. They're experienced sailors right? They, they know weather patterns. They know times of year. They know when storms should happen. They know how all of this is supposed to work. They knew they weren't risking it by setting sail for Tarshish. Then all of a sudden, this terrible windstorm comes, batters the ship, threatens to destroy it. They aren't confused that this is a supernatural thing, right? So they cast lots to see which one of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Now, we could have a whole conversation on casting lots, okay? Um, and, and I'm going to say something that, that might be misunderstood. So I'm going to say it, and then I'm probably going to be mad at myself for saying it. And then you can talk to me about it privately. That's not how we decide things anymore. And I know that's part of our history a little bit as a church, um, but you're never going to find an example of that in the New Testament after God gives the Holy Spirit for wisdom and, and, and discernment. You're not going to find that anymore. But in this instance, this is the way when we have done all of the work that we can do Okay, you'll see this in the Old Testament a lot, and you see it in Acts 1 when they select a new apostle to replace Judas. But we, we get to the point where we've done all the legwork we can do, and the decision is too close to call, 
So we say, okay, God, we've done all of the work we can do, and now we can't figure this out. So now, God, we kind of, um, in this way, you think of it as like we roll the dice, and we trust that you are going to direct the outcome of the dice, and that's the direction we'll go. And we see that in the Old Testament quite a bit. Um, I'm not sure it's the New Testament model because you don't read it after the church is established, and, and there's a lot of decisions that are made in the church. So as a model, it seems to disappear, uh, and we're not mad at it, but I think there's a better way to use the power of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom that God gives to prayerfully make decisions. But, but that's what they do. They cast lots, or they play go fish, and they get to a point where um, they identify Jonah as the reason for the storm. Jonah doesn't fight it. He owns it. And they ask him, hey, who are you? What's your line of work? What country are you from? What's your nationality? The reason they're asking these exploratory questions is because they're trying to figure out what God they've offended. Because they want to know what God they're supposed to pray to. Right? That's the whole thing they're trying to do here is they're trying to figure out how to fix this. Right? If it's the God of the sea, they need to do something to make the God of the sea relax. If it's the God of the wind, they need to do something to make the God of the wind relax. They need to figure out, because these are, these are people who are pagans, and, and, and they're, they're just trying to figure out how to make it better. And so they're asking all these questions. What's your nationality? What God do you serve? Who is this? What are you from? What, what got us to this point? And here's where Jonah is just, he doubles down on stupid. Jonah answered, I'm a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. There's a couple things to note there in that text that are just interesting. One is that word for worship, you know what that word literally means? Fear. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. It's an odd way for him to say it, considering that he's currently running away from this God. And then he says this other thing that's weird. He is the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. It's like Jonah is having a realization at this point. It's like, how did I think I could run away from this guy? How far did I think I could get? And the sailors were terrified because they know about Yahweh. They know about the God of the Hebrews. They know who he is. Why did you do it? They groaned. And then they get to the meat of it. Since the storm was getting worse, they asked him, hey, what do we do to stop the storm? And Jonah, being a good, devout Hebrew, says, well, here's what we have to do. We have to make a sacrifice and we have to pray for repentance. We have to ask God to forgive us for our mistakes. That way, he'll spare us and it'll be okay. That's not what it says. Jonah is so far gone at this point that instead of asking God to forgive him, he asks for death. I mean, I want you to track what Jonah is saying here. Jonah is saying, the storm is my fault. I know it's all my fault because God wants me to go to Nineveh and I don't want to go to Nineveh. God's going to bring forgiveness to the Ninevites, and I don't think the Ninevites deserve forgiveness. And so here's what I want to do. Instead of going to Nineveh, I want you to throw me in the sea, and I will drown, and I will die, and you will be saved, and the Ninevites will burn in hell. I mean, that's what Jonah is doing here. I mean, I need you to track this. This isn't Jonah being confused. This isn't Jonah knowing, oh, it's, it's going to be cool. There's a whale out there, and it's going to swallow me up, and everything's going to work out fine. 
This is Jonah saying, hey, listen, the storm's my fault. You shouldn't die because of me. Throw me in the water. I'll die. The Ninevites won't get grace, and you guys will be okay. This is Jonah's plan. See, Jonah is so spiritually numb at this point that he is choosing death rather than choosing to do what God has called him to do. He's not confused about what he's asking for. He is very, very clear about what he's asking for. Some of you, and I'm, I'm not pointing fingers, some of me, okay, sometimes we run the risk of our hearts getting this hard. And you, you know that's you if you've like, well, I refuse to forgive that. I refuse to forgive that. And then you list the thing that's so bad that you think you shouldn't have to forgive it. And I promise you, the thing that's so bad that you shouldn't have to forgive it pales in comparison to what the God of the universe, Jesus Christ himself, nailed to a cross, saying to the people that nailed him to a cross, when he is perfectly innocent, none of us are perfectly innocent, he's perfectly innocent, they are nailing him to a cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. They've made a mistake. Forgive them. And then we're called to forgive. Jesus says, hey, forgive like I've forgiven. Love like I love. And we say, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not forgiving that guy. I'm not forgiving that lady. And, and it's problematic. And that's like Jonah. Jonah says, man, I would rather talk about stubborn. I would rather die than ask for forgiveness and take grace to the Ninevites. Okay, But the sailors are a little bit more moral and gracious than Jonah. That's got a sting too, right? And they don't want to throw him over. And so they row harder. They see land and they try to get to land and they row harder and harder and harder trying to get towards where the land should be. And they finally realize they can't make it. But what's interesting here is that Jonah has put them in harm's way. And yet they want to give him grace and mercy. It's the very same grace and mercy from God that Jonah refuses to give to the Ninevites. And that's got to sting. But they can't get there. God does not allow them to, to get to land. And so finally they get to the point where they're resigned uh, and they cry out to the Lord, Jonah's God, O oh Lord, Yahweh, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin. Don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh, Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. And they have agreed and consented to toss him in. And the sailors picked up Jonah, threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. I mean, at once. They throw him in, and immediately the storm dies. Because Jonah's God, the Hebrew God, Yahweh, the God of everything, he's the God of heaven who creates the land and the sea. He's the one that sent the wind, and as soon as Jonah was in the water, he's the one that stilled it. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. So some good comes from this. The sailors respond to God's wrath by tossing Jonah into the sea. God responds by calming the sea. The sailors respond by vowing themselves to the Hebrew God, Yahweh, and God alone. They vow to sacrifice to him and to serve him. 
So, so here's what I want you to think about as we start to wrap this up. And we're going to get into chapter 2, and we're going to get in, because God's not done with Jonah. Jonah's done. Jonah's done. Jonah's checked out. Jonah says, throw me in, and I will die, and that will be the end of it. But God's not done with Jonah. You know what we're going to get, by the way? Side note, pause. Uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit in the next couple weeks, but we're going to get this cool thing. Some of you have this concern about how can God be completely sovereign, which means God is always going to get his way, and mankind have free will, meaning that we decide our own fate. In our brains, it seems like those two things should not work together. Like, if we get to choose our own way, how can God always get his way? And if God's always going to get his way, how can we choose our own way? And how does that work together? Um, This is a great picture of that. In this story, when we get to the end, God's sovereignty is never compromised. God gets his way. There is no plan B. His plan A is Jonah, but he never forces Jonah. There is going to be a point where Jonah gives up, and we're going to read about this next week, and he says, fine, I'll do it. And Jonah, in his free will, is going to decide to go. His freedom will be intact and maintained, and God's sovereignty is maintained. And so this is a great story when people want to know, well, how can we have God who's in charge of everything and free will? Keep tracking through the rest of this series, and you're going to see both of those flourish, right? But that's a side note. Let's get back to this. Here's the thing that I want you to dwell on as we get, as we get close to the end here. Sailors picked up Jonah, and they threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once, and the sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power. They offered him a sacrifice, and they vowed to serve him. Here's my question for you. Are there people in your life that desperately need you to wake up so that you can save them? I think about a parent who is doing stupid, whose kids are watching, and he or she desperately needs you to wake up so that you can be a part of their redemption. See, Jonah wakes up, and Jonah says, yeah, you're going to have to throw me in the water, and, and, and that results in the saving of the crew. Okay, and that's a little dramatic. I'm not suggesting that anybody should throw you overboard. But are there people in your life that desperately need you to stop it? And they need you to come home. And they need you to do right. And they need you to embrace the God of the universe. And they need you to do it publicly and clearly and joyfully. Why? Because it's good for them. And it saves them. If you've got, if you've got children, I think about my kids My kids need to hear me, and this won't change as they get older. This won't change as they're adults, and this won't change as they leave the house. My kids need to hear me, and they need to see me publicly honor God and praise God and make hard decisions to follow God. Why? Because when I do those things, that will lead to their salvation. But if all I do is complain about God and complain about church and complain about how hard things are, What's that going to do to their faith? And what's that going to do to the way that they engage? It's going to be hard. Your coworkers, right? Your coworkers that know about your secret life. And they know about your, your Christian life. And they know how they butt heads and contradict one another. They desperately need you to wake up. They desperately need you to wake up and engage and seek repentance and restoration. Why? Because that can lead to their salvation. If you are, in some way, shape, or form, you are sleeping and you are ignoring what God is trying to do in your life, I promise you that it is negatively impacting some people. Some people need for you to wake up because your waking up will directly impact their salvation. 
It's just something that you need to know. If you've got kids at home, that's easy. You get that. You see it, right? But other family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, people that, that you know and talk to, listen, there's people that desperately need that in your life, okay? All right, we finish. Um, 117, they've thrown Jonah over. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. This is where we get to this part of the story, and some people think, oh, so this is make-believe. This is a parable. This is something that we're telling to, to, to kind of teach a lesson. It's like the prodigal son story in that it's not real, but it's about real life. And here's what I'm saying. I'm going to remind you again. No, this is real. This is historical. Jesus references this as historical fact. It's fanciful. It's weird. But it doesn't make it less real. So God arranges for um, Jonah to be inside the fish for three days and three nights. And some of you that don't buy it, you're going to be like, well, wouldn't he have been digested after three days? Yes, right? But here's the thing. We have no trouble believing that God sent a storm, that they drew lots and it happened to fall on Jonah, and then they threw Jonah overboard, and that God had arranged for a big fish or a whale to swallow him. Like, all of that is reasonable. But how is he going to live for three days? Like, if we can believe all of this other stuff, this, this is easy. We can get this one. This is a real thing. God has arranged for Jonah, um, basically, to have a timeout. I mean, you've given your kids timeouts before, right? Go to your room, sit on your bed, and think about what you've done. Well, Jonah has a timeout inside the fish for three days, three nights, Okay? And that's where we're going to end this. Here's my encouragement to you, is just to realize, though, like Jonah, ask the um, ushers to come forward. We're going to prepare to collect this morning's offering and, and those things. But <clears throat> as we get ready to do that, I want to tell you this. As a Christian, there is something you need to understand here. There is a point where if you are truly going to repent and you are truly going to fix things, there is a point where, like Jonah you are going to have to face death. You are going to have to die. Matthew 16 says it this way. Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my followers, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your own life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. You have to be, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, okay, I need to repent. If you're thinking here this morning, you're okay, I need to come to God, or I need to give up that secret part of my life, or I need to do something different. I need to wake up because there are other people that are counting on me to save them, and I've got to get my act together and get it right. If you're there, there is one simple way to do that. The way to do that is to be prepared to die. To die to yourself. That's what Jesus says. If you want to be my follower, give up your own way. Take up your cross. Die to yourself. If you are so worried about hanging on to your life, your way of life, your doing things, then you're going to lose your life and you're going to lose the opportunity. But if you are really into this, then you will give up your life for my sake. And that's where you'll find something real. That's where all of it will make sense. So this is the moment where if this is what you really want, you've got to give up your way of doing it going to pray for us. I'm going to encourage you in your heart. If you've got some business to do with God, this is the time. We're also going to pray for our offering. I want to remind you, if you're visiting with us today, you are under no obligation to participate. This is something that those of us who call Blessed Hope home, we participate in to fund the ministries of the church, which are all about the gospel. Okay? Uh, if you're visiting also, this is a time you can throw that 
um, connection card into the offering plate. Make sure you swing by the Welcome Center. Heavenly Father God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Jonah, and it's just a, a simple, sometimes fanciful story, um, but it's a real thing, and it teaches us about your character. It teaches us about how you require holiness and how you are working um, in this world and in our lives to get us to a point where we are pursuing you. Father, you never expect us to be perfect, but you do expect us to try to grow to be more and more like your son. And Father, we know that that means that we need to give up and die to ourselves daily. We need to get false beliefs out of our head. The idea that we're better than those people, we aren't. The idea that our sin isn't as bad, it absolutely is. And the idea that we can hide parts of ourselves from you, ah, oh, Father, it's foolish. Help us to wake up. Help us to wake up and understand what you've called us to do and the role that you've called us to play. And Father, if there are those here um, this morning that just need to repent, maybe for the first time ever, as they turn to you and, and trust you for their salvation. Or Father, maybe it's for the hundredth time as we turn away from sin and try to grow to be more and more like your son. I pray that you'll just uh, encourage us in our hearts. It's not a complicated thing to repent. It's just the decision to confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord and I'm gonna do it his way. Father, if there's people here that need that this morning, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit that you will just draw them closer. And Father, I pray that you'll bless this offering and that you'll multiply it and that you'll use it and you'll allow us to use it to bring more and more people into the kingdom of God, to share the gospel with people that need to make that same decision and that you'll help us spread your fame and your glory all over this place. Father, we love you and we praise you. Amen.